0: Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is music publisher, Sean O'Malley. But first of all, last week I wrote a blog post in my Music 3.0 blog. It was all about how clubs and music venues all over the world are closing at a record rate. Now, they're closing because of gentrification, where all of a sudden everything is going upscale, And as a result, the rents are going up, becoming too high. Another factor is insurance premiums, which every club has to have. They're jumping through the roof. Then there's the fact that there are noise laws now. So once an area gentrifies, all of a sudden, neighbors in the condos and apartments around don't want to hear loud music at 10 o'clock at night. And finally, inflation is driving up the costs on everything from power to alcohol. So that gives us a reason why clubs are closing at a fast pace today. But the fact of the matter is, music venues have been in trouble long before, and it really had a lot to do with the drinking age. So let me explain. After Prohibition, the 21st Amendment passed in December of 1931, and it set the legal minimum drinking age in the United States at 21 This remained consistent until the late 60s and 70s, and really, the war in Vietnam started a revolution. So basically, you had kids that were 18 going over to Vietnam, and they were saying, if I can die for my country at 18, I should be able to at least have a beer. So as a result, numerous states began to lower the minimum drinking age to 18, and in fact, in 1971, the 26th Amendment lowered the national voting age and also the drinking age kind of went with that from 21 to 18. As a result, clubs popped up on just about every corner. And that meant that musicians could play seven nights a week and make money doing so and actually make a pretty good living just playing in clubs in their own area. They didn't have to travel outside. So this was kind of the golden age of of music venues, golden age of being a musician, working musician, because there were more venues, more places to play than there actually were good bands at the time. One of the problems though with having a lower drinking age is the fact that you have kids that would go out and have a drink too many and then get into an accident. So we saw drunk driving really spike and as a result, the Mothers Against Drunk Driving movement sprouted And all of a sudden, everybody was afraid of drunk driving, and rightfully so. So, Congress passed the National Minimum Age Drinking Act, which raised the drinking age to 21, and this was in 1984. This prompted the first wave of club closures, because all of a sudden, half the patrons of most clubs could no longer go there. So clubs started to close left and right. Now, in the 90s, bands, artists, and musicians took another hit. And this came from two different things. It came from karaoke... And it came from DJs because clubs could make the same amount of money, but they didn't have to pay a band. They didn't have to pay an artist. All they'd have to do in many cases is just install a karaoke machine, and they were making the same amount of money. They had the same amount of people. Didn't much matter. And DJs, the same thing. One person would come in for maybe a tenth of what a band would command. So it's gotten worse and worse ever since then. We went from the golden age of clubs, the golden age of having a lot of places to play for musicians to fewer and fewer and fewer, which brings us to where we're at today with so many new clubs closing, especially after the pandemic. So where does this end? Well, we don't know, but a critical facilitator of artist development that fueled what many think is the most creative time in music history probably isn't coming back anytime soon. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook you can also find it on amazon and apple books and remember you can learn all about the latest in music audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com there you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events that's bobbyosinski.com Now, record labels have never been good with storing master tapes. And as a matter of fact, there were decades where they didn't even care. And there's lots of stories about labels deciding that they needed more room. And well, that room that stores all the master tapes, just throw them in the trash. This happened an awful lot, especially during the 70s and 80s. But when the CD revolution came around, all of a sudden record labels were reminded that Wait a second we can actually make some money off of these masters through reissues and compilations so now they started to pay more attention that being said the universal music fire that destroyed dozens of master tapes by groups like nirvana and rem and john coltrane Joni mitchell aretha franklin and many others that was kind of a wake-up call and then myspace lost 12 years of music during a server migration that's 53 million files it's even worse for indigenous music, where there's no real place to store that, and it's getting harder and harder to find. While well, all is not lost, the Arctic World Archive sits between Norway and the North Pole, and it houses a collection of digitized historical documents that include paintings by Rembrandt and the entire National Archives of Mexico. Sitting right next to that is the Global Seed Vault, which is the backup storage facility preserving duplicates of over 1 million seed samples. This is all beneath hundreds of feet of permafrost, and both are housed in decommissioned coal mines that were designed to withstand catastrophes like nuclear warfare. What does this have to do with music? Well, in this Arctic World Archive, they're now instituting something called the Global Music Vault, and this is specifically to preserve the world's music. Sounds good, doesn't it? But the fact of the matter is, they don't have unlimited storage, so they needed a new, clean, and efficient format for storage. They didn't want CDs, they didn't want vinyl, they didn't want tape. They wanted something brand new. So they came up with a piece of glass that's basically the size of a Polaroid photograph and can hold about a terabyte of information. This is impervious to extreme temperatures, water damage, electromagnetic pulses, and abrasion. So it's the perfect medium for long-term storage. So what's going to be preserved? Yeah, that's the whole problem, isn't it? Global Music Vault turned to the International Music Council, which is an advisory body to the United Nations, and they asked them to come up with an idea of what actually should be stored here. And what they decided was to focus on heritage music from around the world first. So in other words, they're not going to record labels and saying, give us your thousands and thousands of titles. They're going to look at early blues music and jazz music, Aboriginal music from Australia, and different indigenous music from just about everywhere. And that comes first. This is actually close to going into operation. And the first deposit will be in the fall of 2023. So this is a great idea we definitely have to preserve all this stuff, and we have to preserve it in a way that's very efficient and is pretty much immune to disaster. So the Global Music Vault is going a long way to preserve our music, and we should all be really happy about that. I guess this week is Sean O'Malley, who's the CEO of the boutique music publisher Regard Music. Sean has more than 20 years of experience in music publishing and operations, including royalty collection and distribution, licensing, data processing, and systems development. He was also part of the team that started GMR, the first new performing rights organization in 75 years. Prior to that, Sean worked at ASCAP for eight years where he supervised a large multi-coast team to resolve issues on behalf of its members. During the interview, we spoke about working for ASCAP the differences between GMR and other PROs, AI-generated songs, the era of derivative content, the future of music publishing, and much more. I spoke with Sean via Zoom from his office in Los Angeles. Let's start by talking about your background, how you got in the business. You're a player, I presume.
1: Yeah, so it's it's funny you say that. Um... Uh, the way i got in the business is is probably a little bit random uh, i didn't know anyone really in the business except for a very close friend who was a producer he actually worked on the john test show uh, for a local radio show called tom Lycus as well and he used to do some things with the latin grammys super passionate about music like myself but he for whatever reason i don't know if it was his stepfather played music or something he was more willing to you know,, uh, take a gamble and jump into the business. My family had always told me historically, if you don't if you're not born in the business, you don't belong in the business. So that was the viewpoint they had, and i I uh, sadly just accepted that as status quo and and truth. But um, a series of events, uh, unfortunately, that close friend who was telling me always that I should work in music because I was passionate about it and and my day job was, you know, while I was in college was not something I was very passionate about. He was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident by an individual who was driving a hundred plus miles per hour, drunk high on, you know, meth or something. And, you know, there was a period for about a week or two where I honestly don't recall anything. It was, it was, you know, it's a, it's a void now for me, but obviously it was a healing moment. And I just thought to myself, I've got to make sense of life. I'm 20 years old. My friend who was killed was 21. Apparently You're not guaranteed to live to your 80 or, you know, 90. That's just not in the cards always. So uh, I kind of came out of that and thought the best way to refocus my life was to kind of take his advice, work in music, and then kind of carry the torch for us both. Because obviously he, he, you know, he was a very successful young man and life was cut short. And uh, yeah, so that's what made me basically I quit my job. I went uh, back to school because I had taken a semester off school and i went to cal state northridge met with the head of the, the music industry studies there joel leach he was really convincing convinced me that they were a better place than than usc and uh, i chose them on really his kind of salesmanship alone and uh he found me a job actually at a, at a very well-known recording studio called rumbo recorders and next thing i know I'm, I'm in the music business i'm studying music. And I'm at a recording studio and, you know, apparently my, my, my parents were wrong. You could, you could be in the business and not be born into it.
0: I read somewhere where you were a luthier at some point.
1: Yeah. So that, <laughs> so the job I had prior and that I had taken some time off school was in construction management. That's the business my dad worked in for 50 plus years. He was very prolific out he did, you know, great work and he was very proud of that work i'm proud of it as well it just wasn't the right you know job or industry for me and but the job that i was being paid for at the time when i took that semester off was significantly more money than that runner position at a studio <laughs> so i worked at that studio i don't know maybe a year a year and a half a friend growing up her father built handmade guitars that were just breathtaking and he basically said look i'll pay you twice what they're paying you at the studio if you come work for me and that was a no-brainer, you know? Um, I mean, the best story I can tell you about the recording studio is that when I worked there, the other runners were jealous because I had started at a higher pay rate than when they had started. And I had to explain to them how minimum wage works, that essentially they couldn't pay me less and they couldn't pay you less because there are laws that prohibit that. And again, that's like another golden lesson uh, for the music business. Yeah. <laughs> you know? They'll pay you nothing if they can. And then, you know, fortunately, there were some, you know, uh, laws that uh, that helped us at least make something during that time. But yeah, I did. I went and worked as a luthier for about two years. I loved it. Very enjoyable. Uh, But the the, the man who mentored me, um, he basically at some point sat me down and said, look, your kind of uh, process and vision is probably better suited for something larger than building handmade guitars you might be a little too ambitious for, uh, uh, what we're trying to do here, which was, you know, I think he was right. It was, you know, it was meant to be boutique and not to be, you know, fully scaled to, to, to deliver guitars to everybody. So, um, so really that's when I made the jump from that world into publishing and, and I really haven't looked back since. how did you get your first publishing job? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. Um, the, the time I was at, Cal state Northridge and their music industry studies, um, require that you take an internship. And it's really strange. I had this bizarre epiphany when reading a book about, you know, songs being detected and paid on radio. And there was a place called ASCAP. I thought that was, you know, the best thing I'd ever heard of, you know, that there was technology and it was, it was basically telling me about Shazam before Shazam, you know, existed. And so, you know, I I sent an email to ASCAP. I got an interview. I was fortunate enough to get an internship at ASCAP. And then as the stars aligned, I was, I was basically assigned to someone named Randy Grimmett, who I would then go and work with for 15 years. So that wasn't where I got my first publishing job, actually. Interestingly enough, Randy didn't have anything available at ASCAP when I could have made that jump. And, um, I actually worked at a small independent publishing company in Encino called Don Williams music group, which, um, was a great kind of like lesson on everything. I, I got to do a little bit of everything, you know, Don's very entrepreneurial and very kind of, uh, uh, do, at, do whatever you want to do. If you can make it work, um, very pragmatist or <laughs> he's, a, he's very much pragmatist and, um, That was a great experience and honestly um, really kind of set me up because when I then eventually did go join Randy at ASCAP and work 15 years with Randy, both at ASCAP and at Global Music Rights, the perspective I had was very different than anyone else there, uh, including Randy. You know, most of the people there came from a society background. They saw ASCAP very specifically in this, you know, somewhat siloed light and for me, I had worked at a publisher, so I saw them as just a piece of the puzzle. I didn't see it necessarily. It was a significant piece. It was very important. And I and I was extremely grateful to work there. But it wasn't. I don't think I looked at it the same way that others did. And so when I saw problems there, to me, it wasn't everything's too sacred to be touched or fiddled with. I had the opposite <laughs> view of it, which is it's got to work for the publishers, got to work for the writers. And I think that really helped me uh, during my time there.
0: Did you get a lot of pushback for that
1: absolutely i mean i would say every industry is equally has an equal amount of inertia pushing against anyone who's interested in innovation and you have to be i would i would almost argue you have to be someone who doesn't want to be innovative you have to be innovative you you're it it's too much it grates your your brain and your psyche too greatly if you're not innovating or else it's just a matter of time before, you know, like I said, inertia, other factors are too overpowering and will eventually grind you to a halt. I I guess I was fortunate enough to be the youngest of five children, uh, you know, in an Irish Catholic family. So, you know, it's a lot easier for me to keep fighting, I guess.
0: (laughs) Okay. So since you had a big background at at ASCAP, what's the one thing that people don't know or you wish they knew about not necessarily ASCAP, but a
1: PRO. Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, they are they're really kind of the the first legitimate entryway into publishing. I mean, if you really look at what music publishing is intellectual property rights and when they come to be relevant in the US, and you look at ASCAP's formation and being founded by Arguably, some of the largest writers in American history um, in 1914, then really they set the kind of they set the tone. They set a lot of things in motion. That a concept of writer and publisher share is not even discussed in copyright law because the government doesn't care. It's equity. It's percentages. They don't care, and so. If you think about it, the only way the concept of publisher share and writer share could have been created was by a writer who thought, hey, if we don't separate these two pieces, it's going to be all owned by other people. The writers will own nothing. And I think some of that paternal instinct probably led them to to create some of those things. I don't have any, you know, outside of those evident, that evidence, I don't have any direct, uh, you know, uh, line that says that's how it was created, but I think that's pretty logical given the sy- sy- system. And so I think um, when you look at PROs or any, um, you know, collective management organization, they really have a great history and a great um, general sense and perspective. And I think most of that has been just kind of thrown out the window. Obviously, having said all that, when Randy and I left ASCAP to, to start Global Music Rights with Irving uh, Azoff, obviously, um, We weren't, again, we weren't believing that ASCAP was so sacred, it couldn't be improved upon. Uh, Certainly with respect to competitors like BMI and CSAC, we looked at what they did well or what they didn't do well and used those lessons to educate ourselves. So yeah, I would say most importantly, I think people understand that the societal network has a lot of pros and uh, the cons need to be addressed. But I don't think, you know, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that.
0: How is GMR different than ASCAP, BMI, CSAC?
1: Yeah, I think at its core is a fundamental connection between the licensing value and the distribution value. When you're smaller, when you're more boutique, it's easier to create through lines from start to finish. The larger you get uh, organizationally, I think it's it becomes almost impossible. I think you look at the size of, an ASCAP or a BMI, and they're tasked with a, uh, you know, I guess what, what we want to, who, who do we want to use from mythology? You know, Sisyphus, or I don't know, someone like that. But basically, they're tasked with this Herculean, impossible, un. They're never thanked for trying, by the way, <laughs> um, but but the, but knowing that you avoid that with the ap- approach that we took with with GMR, I think you get all the benefits of that. And I think that's the key component. You know, a lot of people make a big distinction about for-profit versus not-for-profit. I'm not sure that that has as much uh, implication. It probably has some, but I do think the biggest thing is being smaller and being able to be a little bit more nimble and a little bit faster to react. I think that's the that's the mo- the more important elements. Um, but again, that goes back to what we talked about before, which is that inertia and any person, any company that becomes entrenched in keeping the status quo is going to have you know, difficulties as things progress and as things change. And I think that's what we've seen in the marketplace.
0: You know, that's really interesting when I think about it because with intellectual property and copyright being so different now when we're in the digital age and needing to really come up to what we need today, you would think that, gmr would be in a much better position to take up that fight and change when never that happens
1: absolutely yeah no that's exactly right and i think you look at you know technology is a a very great example of the challenges for for the incumbents actually because you know for example when i was at ascap they built a massive system called prep you know the price tag was supposedly 100 million dollars paid for over 10 years. By the time that system was complete and it was very difficult to even just to get it online and it only processes domestic data or at least it did at the time that I left, that was, again, it was so hard to get there and, and they spent all that money and you looked at the system and said, hmm, we probably could build something better if we spent the next 12 months on it. And that's that's a really big lesson I was fortunate enough to learn uh, firsthand, but I think it's a lesson that we should all, you know heed we should all know that technology is exponentially changing and growing and so anything we build like with my new company regard music that's that's a huge part of what i pay attention to are we building something that by the time we finish is no longer relevant because that's a mistake we should really iterate and reiterate as necessary and i think uh, specifically with in the kind of digital spectrum of time we're in it's really paramount that you do that at this juncture because you don't want to be overspending and, and overcomplicating things that might change very quickly
0: i want to get to regard music in a second but while i think about it and we're on the subject of technology so where do you come down on ai generated songwriting and songs
1: sure uh you know i think well ultimately it won't be for me to decide it's probably going to end up in the supreme court or something like that uh, in, in the future you know the the copyright laws i think a lawyer Uh, that I know said to me that the copyright law is pretty specific about it being a U.S. citizen, a a person. And so that there's a lot of belief that there's protections as a result of that that would require a person then to become the copyright holder. But to your point, whoever owns that AI could potentially be that person. You know, personally, my initial reaction is, as a fan, is just to say, no thanks. Um, (laughs) I would say, there's a long line and uh, there's a long line of, of items that humans created without questioning whether they should. I think this might be one of those. I think AI has great applications in many sectors, and many areas. I'm not sure art is the best one, um, and it may be that, you know, I would hope we will see that one of the things that humans can do better than computers, no matter how advanced they become, is creating art and expressing human emotions. I would hope that it will always be the case. Otherwise, um, something has <laughs> has happened fundamentally to change life as we know it. But um, but generally, I don't try to judge it. I think there's applications. Uh, you know, I, I read a an author who's always talking about exponentiality, and he recently posted a great amount of information about you know AI generated video, and there could be great applications for that. There could be. For all we know, it could allow someone to have even greater ideas or concepts, and you know, reducing uh, costs as a as a driver or as a factor in what expressions um, really touch people. That's my hope, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. We you know we as a society get to decide how that technology gets utilized and whether it impacts things. You could argue the same thing was true about the beginnings of youtube or spotify i would argue that in the end both of those things ended up being i think generally pretty good there's some things i might have suggested they do differently which might have had different outcomes but i think that's the goal we as a society have to decide what we want to value and hopefully it's you know great music it's great (laughs) great songs that that motivate you i i feel like I, i used to teach a publishing class at cal poly pomona and i would ask the students every year the same question because i know what my answer is but i want to know what does a 20 year old think because i was once in that class i I understand not specifically that class but i understand that thought process having been a young person who wanted to get in the industry and you know create new things i would always ask them do you think music is better now or in the past and if it was better in the past what decade and the sad thing is, over time, I I saw that more and more students said the past. It was it was fewer and fewer people believed in the current music. I think that's unfortunate because um, there's great music out there and still great music being created, and it's important we value that and continue to make sure that's a priority. But what was what was also interesting was the, the the decades that people chose. And personally, growing up in the 90s, uh, you know, being in high school in the 90s. I thought to myself when when I was in high school, we always thought the '60s were like the best for music. We thought we lost out, and then looking back, you're you're thinking to yourself the '90s was pretty great. There's a lot of great music that happened in the '90s. Uh, it was just you couldn't maybe see that that perspective when you were living it. So it's it's really an interesting thought. Like, what, what will we all think in 20 years? Where will we be? Um, what will be the next thing that makes people excited? You know, it's 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 really, that's kind of the exciting part of life, I think, is not knowing what's what's next.
0: Well, that begs the question, since they seem to think that current music isn't quite as good as something from the past, it makes me wonder, and we can cite many things, it's the homogenous nature of, of using loops and not real players and whatever, and limited chord changes, all that stuff. But... It makes me wonder, as a publisher, how would you look at that then? How would you look at something that's modern? And you, you kind of have to gauge it against other songs that have long life and longevity. How does that fit into the way you look at things?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, for me as a a fan, uh, certainly as someone who works in the business, I like to think of the time that we live in now as being, and this is going to sound negative, but I, hopefully people see it as Somewhat gray. I, I, you know, I might have my own feelings, but I'm trying to be as gray as possible. But We kind of live in an era of derivative content, and what I mean by that, outside of the remakes of, you know, Ocean's Eleven or whatever other <laughs> movie, or maybe covers of songs, I think the current generation is much more interested in putting pieces together. The art is very different. You know, they're, they're no longer just painting something and calling that art. Some people are, but There's other variations on that. There's all kinds of kind of modern takes on that. And I think that is actually really interesting. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that. I don't think the younger generation cares as much as we might. Um, You know, we might hear a song and think, well, that's very similar to this other song. I don't know if the younger generation thinks that's a negative. I think they actually think that's a positive. They actually enjoy that someone has taken something old and made it relevant again. a very weird again there's a lot of coincidences in life or if you believe something else that again the universe is aligned a certain way but when i worked at both ascap and gmr we had a composer named walter murphy and walter historically uh you know is known for his early days for doing a fifth of beethoven which is you know a disco version of beethoven's fifth and uh you was great for him, and he, you know, he's very proud of it as he should be. What's really strange is we at regard now represent Robin Thicke, and he actually did a take on that. And honestly, when I told my wife, who's not that much younger than me, she's, you know, certainly, probably technically a generation below, but you know, not. She's only seven years younger, so not significantly. She didn't even know about the original, and it's funny because I'm pretty sure I told her about it <laughs> with respect to Walter but she knew the Robin Thicke version. So when I played the Walter version, she goes, oh, that's really cool. It's so cool to hear these two things and and then to think about them both. And I thought to myself, that's a really great way to express that, to describe it. We're living in this very, I'm not I shouldn't say we're, but some of us, I'm, I, I'm assuming maybe this is for you, this is the case for me, we're living kind of in this moment in time and looking as we're getting older backwards. But for people who've never experienced that music before, they're seeing it very differently. It's it's like a matrix, not a straight line. And I think that's kind of a fascinating thing um, to consider. So certainly as a publisher, I try to think about that. I try to educate my clients to think that way as best I can. Obviously, they're going to have their own opinions and they're certainly entitled to them. But I try to have them think about that because there's a lot of opportunities for your art to um, register with a new audience and to be... Um, use as expression in a completely different fashion than you intended and that that can be really powerful i still really love the way that copyright law is set up in that the right of derivative work still resides with the copyright holder i think that that it has to be the case because it it just devalues the art otherwise is if anyone can do whatever they want with it and you don't have any control um obviously limited duration is is fine for copyright But I do like the idea of kind of this new era. I mean, it's not that new. I guess there were samples, you know, in the 80s and 90s, of course, as well. But it's just I think they're not looking at it the same way. It used to be a sample maybe was play a track and, you know, uh, sing a rap over it. And now there's a whole other kind of view of it that art is this very different kind of uh, approach. Like I said, a derivative Kind of generation so it's interesting you know this is a generation that likes memes and other things which i enjoy so again i try not to judge it too much and just instead try to see some of the merits because in 50 years that might be considered classic and you know old or and there's going to be some new version that people are going to want to undertake let's hope so that's the hope right is that it continues tell me about
0: regard music how did that come about
1: sure yeah uh so You know, I told you my first job was in, you know, music publishing, and I I loved everything about it. There were things that I worked on that I liked being a part of, you know, some of the sync licenses that we did. Certainly, you know, helping uh, writers who owned their own copyrights was a great, uh, enjoyable experience, uh, which I still enjoy today. Um, Certainly to the extent that you can participate with people and, and become an equity owner with them and partner with the music. I think that's a great opportunity. I think traditional publishing deals still are around for a reason and but at the same time my background for so many years was on the society side and specifically related to performing rights which for most things generates you know the lion's share of money so it is very important and relevant but i always kind of wanted to merge those two worlds and and so eventually you know i finally i guess gained the, the courage to go out and do it on my own i got a very generous blessing from randy after working with him for 15 years he was my mentor and um you know still is in many ways but i kind of had to just say to him this is something i really want to do and but i won't do it without doing it the right way and without your blessing and again he was he was generous enough to provide that which gave me the the right amount of courage to to go out on my own so you know it was it was an interesting time to start a business in early 2020 and immediately get hit by a pandemic <laughs> hadn't happened in 100 years. That was an interesting experience. Um very in a kind of a weird twist, I think a gift in many respects. We got to focus on things that weren't client facing that were more uh, you know technological or uh you know focused in the back end. And then um really it's been just busy once we had clients we were representing since 21 to you know to the current day. It's it's just been really lights out busy which has been a you know certainly a blessing. Um, and just kind of to bring the whole story in this, again, many things aligned for me. I'm very, I feel very fortunate in that respect, but the, a number of the copyrights that I represented in that very first music publishing job, we now administer those rights. Um, so it's, it feels very full circle to me and, and I enjoy that a lot. And there are people that I didn't get to work with for some time, like, you know, Lyle Lovett that, I now get to work with again. And that's great fun as well. So, you know, you, you there's, I think the one thing I would say to anyone who's listening, who's trying to glean a little bit of advice in it, I would just say, everything happens for a reason, and you just have to wait until it explains to you why <laughs> or how. If you're listening, you'll, you'll hear it. If you're, if you're watching, you'll see it. And that's the key element is is not being too um, preoccupied to not, you know, recognize that.
0: As my last question, I was going to ask you, what's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned <laughs> along the way, or somebody imparted to you? But that was probably it, right?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's a good one to end uh, end with. Although, you know, there was a funny one that Irving used to say about management was about doing the impossible for the ungrateful. <laughs> so that was always a funny explanation, but I, you know, it, he's not wrong. It's 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 um, it's you know hard for people who are really in the creative sphere, operating in that on a level that's significantly high. As someone who, you know, we didn't even talk about this, but before I was a luthier, and how I ended up there was trying to be a session guitarist, trying to be a songwriter, trying to produce, and having experienced all those things creatively with mixed results, nothing, you know, making me <laughs> a living that I could create a, you know, support a family on. I have a lot of respect for the people who do that work. It's actually very difficult. You have to have immense talent, immense um conviction. There's just so many things. So it's understandable why if you were that hyper focused in that world and succeeding, anything I'm doing in the business world, it's probably, you know, it it almost seems foreign or alien to you because it's so different. So yeah, I always the main reason I think of that mantra with with Irving is, uh, well, number one, you know, obviously having worked with him, it's, it's a nice thing to just kind of keep in the, the back of your mind as good advice. But the other thing is I feel like it does motivate you on a day when you do feel frustrated. If a client frustrates you or someone on the creative side does frustrate you, you do remind yourself that they're doing something completely dif- different than you and and you might frustrate them in some sort of, you know, reversal. Uh, just as much. And so if you can kind of keep that perspective, then, then you, uh, then you soldier on. And and the truth of the matter is, you know, working on behalf of creators and with creators is like, I'd say that's the, that's the best part of the job. That's the part that I, that's what drew me in when I was 20 years old. And, you know, I'm more than twice as old now. And it's the thing that keeps me uh, smiling every day. So it's, it's really a gift.
0: Before I forget one last question. So you've been in the business for a while and I you've seen a lot of changes. So how has publishing changed in that period and how do you think it's going to change in the future?
1: That's a great question. Yeah, it's it's changed a lot, certainly. <laughs> you know, the story I always tell people when I started as a uh, an intern at ASCAP, they were still doing paper registrations. You know, they were literally telling someone, "Give me a piece of paper and write the percentages on it and the names of the writers." To where we are now, that's crazy. You know, it's night and day. Um so, and it's not like ASCAP was the only one. They were all all the PROs were doing it at that time. It, they were not prepared for this massive digitalization that was going to take place. So there's been massive change. At its heart, I think the business hasn't changed that much insofar as you know, the the creators, the the actual um people who have the talent and create the music, drive this business. And I think. Again, another piece of advice, maybe I'm giving too much advice, but I would tell anyone if you want advice on how to succeed in the music business, just follow the creative people who are the geniuses already, support them, you know, advocate for them, champion for them. That's the key to success. Anything else you have planned is probably going to, unless it's in perfect alignment with that <laughs> mantra, it's going to have problems. So I would I would highly recommend people take that, but the publishing world has become in a moment i would say instantaneous and worldwide it used to be you had to have all these societies in every country because how else are you going to license get money etc in any of these countries the technology makes that almost simple it's very easy to do that now and i think it, it asks a great question of what do those societies in certain territories become now that that is a reality. Simultaneously, the instantaneous nature of streaming of uh, consuming digital product is completely different. So again, what do we do to, to reflect that? And then I think you know how does this how does the societal network respond to that? How do publishers respond to that? I think those are all questions that are kind of shaking out as we speak. But at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is, and this is kind of what I always tell staff <laughs> at Record Music. It really comes down to what I thought when I read that page when I was 20 years old that led me to that internship at ASCAP. I believe that every use was counted and every use was monetized, and that money then perfectly came back to the copyright holders, who are typically writers and publishers. The closer we can get to that, the, then then we're closer to the reality I think we all seek and you know it's we all have to expect we'll never be perfect but in striving to be perfect we can achieve excellence and i think that's really what the industry should be focused on so there's a lot of changes obviously you have wall street investors coming in i think that actually has a lot of power and positivity you know the the major publishers major record labels you know there's i have no bones to pick with any of them but i think when you look at a marketplace you want to have balance and i think wall street is a good balance to some of those publicly traded companies because they all kind of answer to the same powers and don't get me wrong it could it could go a different direction or something that's always a possibility but i think right now they're really interested in being good stewards of the things that they're purchasing and trying to you know be profitable in, a, in an industry but but also be A lot of that profit is based off of solving problems and i think that's that's a good thing so i'm really focused on again those elements and then you know again it's it's important that we we find the common ground with some of these new entrants that will find you know great opportunities to really improve things so i think it's really honestly the most exciting time when i joined the music business most of my friends were going into tech and all thought i was crazy because you know it was 2000 and the world did not think music was going to make any money anytime soon. It was all doom and gloom going down and now it looks like, you know, the sky's the limit. So, um it'll probably be somewhere in between. We'll have to, you know, <laughs> temper expectations, but I I'm really excited. I think the last 20 years have been so much fun and have kind of flown by and I'm I'm really really curious. You mentioned AI, so many topics you brought up today that I'm really excited to see how they kind of flesh out and then like I said, how we as a society decide to react.
0: You can find out more about Sean at regardmusic.com. That's regardmusic, R-E-G-A-R-D, music, music, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings from my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyownercircle.com where you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.